So the two errors that medicine tends to fall into, and I'll just speak for medicine here for, for mm-hmm. a minute or two, is either we look to experts and we say, well, well, Dr. Barry said that this is what this is called, and this is what this disease is, and this is how I should treat it, and so I'm going to do everything Dr. Barry Bussey says. Um, the <laughs> trouble is, if we follow experts without investigating it, we often cause problems for patients. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature, and I'm your host, Barry Bussey. Remember to make sure that you subscribe on our podcast and also on our Freedom Feature program. You can do that at firstfreedoms.ca. With me today, I have Dr. Sean Watley, who is a practicing physician in Mount Albert, Ontario, and a fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. He's also an author. He wrote, When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. Dr. Watley, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. You know, I just recently saw a op-ed that you had published in National Post. It was entitled something like this, The Right Must Talk About the Morality of Gender-Affirming Care and Assisted Death. And you had talked a lot about in that piece, uh, evidence-based medicine and so forth, but that we need to be doing something more. Can we, can you unpack that for us? But before we do, maybe there's something you would like to share with us a little bit about you and your practice. Uh, sure. I'm, I'm just a family doc in uh, uh, Southern Ontario. Um, we're, I'm rural, but not remote. Most of my time over the last 20 uh, odd years or so has been spent in leadership, actually. And I'm, I've got dragged into medical politics, which I've uh, really had a lot of fun with. Okay. And that's brought me into the policy world and then the think tank world. And so I get a lot of opportunity to write and speak and and uh, talk about these deeper issues behind the clinical care that we try to provide. Mm. That's amazing. Well, your article really, and and folks, I just want you to know that we will put the link below uh, in our summary section uh, of this podcast so that you'll be able to look it up for yourself. But doctor, I just wanted you to help me understand what your main concern is here when it comes to the right talking about morality, because a lot of people would say the right are always talking about morality. We're sick and tired of them talking about morality. Yeah, absolutely. So the, it struck me, you know, when we when we deal with these big policy issues, people who consider themselves right of center, so that's uh, conservatives, uh, classical liberals, libertarians, freedom loving people. Um, so it's it's really an amalgam of people who feel that they are right of center. Sometimes people have no label at all. They just don't want the government to bug them. So all of those mm. folks who identify on that side of the aisle. Um, in general, especially when you're looking in the think tank world and the policy world, we really like to go to evidence. You know, show me the evidence, show me the studies, let's get down to brass tacks. And if the evidence points in a certain direction, let's try to go that direction. And we really worry about using moral language. I think in part because we don't want to be accused of being religious. And so we conflate religion and morality, whereas those are two separate concepts. 
If you look at the other side of the aisle, and I, I love picking at uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh because he's so articulate and he's a great defender of the left, but he'll stand up there and lecture us in his $2,000 suit about corporate greed and cruelty to the workers and on and on. He'll use heavy duty moral language and he never worries about being accused of being religious. I mean, everybody knows he's not religious. So. I think if we leave the stage open when it comes to a moral debate, and if we only talk about evidence, 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 we leave the other side of the argument open and we leave our audience cold. I'm not saying evidence isn't important. Of course we need evidence. But in mm. a case of life and death and gender and sexuality, you're going beyond evidence. These are moral claims. Who do we think we are as a country? Do we want to have poor people choosing to end their life simply because they don't have the funds to make ends meet? I think that's a cruel and inhumane kind of society to be in. And I suspect most can, mm. most Canadians agree. Mm. You know, it's interesting. You, you point out in the article that we don't do uh, randomized testing uh, with respect to whether or not parachutes are a good idea. <laughs> and and indeed, right? I mean, th there's a certain, um, it seems that there's a certain uh, natural understanding or common sense that we need to be thinking about uh, when we're talking about these uh, large moral issues or these large issues of public policy that have moral implications. Yes. And so the two errors that medicine tends to fall into, and I'll just speak for medicine here for, for mm. a minute or two, is either we look to experts and we say, well, well, Dr. Barry said that this is what this is called and this is what this disease is and this is how I should treat it. And so I'm going to do everything Dr. Barry Bussey says. Um, the trouble is, if we follow experts without investigating it, we often cause problems for patients. And so we do right. need evidence. And sort of the highest level of evidence is what we call the randomized controlled trial, where we put, you know, 100 people or 1,000 people on treatment and another 1,000 people that are age matched and they have the same diseases and the same characteristics, same split of male and female, but they're getting sugar pills. And then we study the outcome blinded. So the researchers don't know who's getting what and the patients don't know who's getting what. And so we have this very high bar of evidence that we should try to meet before we can say with a fair degree of certainty that for this kind of patient with this kind of uh, condition, on this kind of treatment, these are the outcomes we can expect. The trouble is many things can't be tested at that level. And so I use the example in the, in the article of parachutes. You're never going to get a research ethics board to allow 100 people to jump out of a plane without a parachute and 100 people to jump out with a parachute. I mean, that's unethical, right? So yeah. we, we push the limits of common sense all the time. But we get into trouble if we put all of our eggs in the RCT or the evidence, the heavy duty evidence basket, or if we put all our eggs in the expert opinion or the, you know, well, this is obviously logical. We're never going to study it basket. And so what I'm saying is we need both baskets, 
when you get into the expert opinion, that's when you start also getting into the ideas about morality. What does it mean to be a human? What sort of country do we want to live in? And all those kind of questions impact clinical decisions. And that's what we're dealing okay, with, with so, gender affirming care and made. Right. Okay. So you, you mentioned that one of the reasons why we don't want to talk about it is that we don't want to be judgmental, I guess. Um, or like, what is your thought on like, how did we get here? Why, why are we having this struggle in discussing these sensitive issues? Well, um, so that's, that's a huge question. I'm not sure I can answer it completely, but I could sort of suggest where we need to start. So we need, for example, mm -hmm. I'll use a couple of concrete cases. Jackie Hollyoak, this is all from the media, so I'm not uh, betraying patient confidentiality here. Um, this is a patient in Fergus. She was considering medical aid in dying or physician-assisted suicide due to chronic pain, and she was also on uh, disability benefits. That was last uh, December. In October, same thing, Amir Faroud. Uh, we heard about veterans with PTSD being suggested to pursue or advised to pursue or consider uh, medical aid in dying, physician-assisted suicide as a form of treatment. And so it seems like it's not a slippery slope that we've been on. It's like we've been on a pogo stick bouncing down the stairway of a stadium. Each leap is greater than the neck than the last. And now we're talking about, you know, whether or not we should have uh, essentially euthanasia for infants that are born with uh, malformations. And even the Toronto Star said, whoa, this is going a step too far. And as people know, usually the star takes a fair fairly far left of center view. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure I can answer your question as to why we're at this spot, but this is where we're at. And I think we need more people to say, hold on, let's actually talk because let's talk about what kind of country we want to be in. These issues are shaping what sort of society we want to be in. Yes, we want to be free. However, is that really freedom or is that just being cruel? Mm -hmm. And... And I, and I guess the thing is, we need to, it, it, it's coming back to the basic, basic principles, right? Like, because one's vision of what's cruel or one's understanding or definition of cruelty, it, it's cr cruelty, there, there would be a difference, right? Like, uh, like, I, I'm just wondering, um, obviously, even understanding that in one era, i.e., for example, we hear of the Roman Colosseum where they literally did gladiator fights to the death. Uh, that was great form of entertainment, whereas today we would say that was cruel. So I'm, I'm kind of like saying, okay, there's, uh, there's different perspectives on things and trying to have a common understanding of what's acceptable and what isn't. And it's, we have seen throughout the ages that there's uh, differences of, of opinion on it. And how can we come to some kind of a semblance or understanding as to uh, what we ought to be doing with such matters as gender affirming care, as it's called, uh, and assisted death? How do we how, how do we deal with this when we've got such a such a uh, kaleidoscope of ideas out there? Yeah, so great question. I, I guess I would start with I, I'll steal a quote from Jonah Gold. 
Goldberg. He's a political commentator from the United States, and he mm. he made a comment about the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath is the traditionally the oath that physicians would take. It's an ancient, ancient piece of writing, and it doesn't totally apply to today, but it still defines basically do no harm. That's where we get the no harm mm -hmm. principle from. And Goldberg said the Hippocratic Oath was not a triumph of science, but a triumph of moral absolutism. And so mm -hmm. liberal democracy rests on a body of laws, and those laws rest on a body of beliefs or principles. And those beliefs themselves actually often aren't provable or deductible by logic. Very often they have a sense of moral absolutism, and some may even say it, they could be chosen arbitrarily even if we can trace the roots back to a particular body of belief. What liberalism has done, and I apologize if I'm getting too far down the rabbit hole here for, mm -hmm. your, for your listeners, but you really start getting into philosophy. And what happened during the early Enlightenment era is we split apart moral philosophy from politics or hardcore philosophy from political philosophy. It started with Machiavelli, actually, and he said, listen, we just have to get politics done. We have work to do, so we're going to leave all this metaphysical stuff and morals and all these things that we can't prove off to the side. So he started the ball rolling, and really it, it comes to fulfillment in Hobbes, where he says, well, we can't agree on anything that's good. The only thing we can agree on that is good is our fear of violent death. So the state mm -hmm. must exist to protect us from this fear of violent death. And so he changed the classical approach where the state existed to try to get something that allowed humans to pursue the true, the good and the beautiful on their own into a state, a Hobbesian view of the state that exists to protect our right to not experience violent death. And so the state now exists to do things as opposed to to existing to actually create a society that, that allows good things to happen. So it's a fundamental shift. And in the scientific world, we, we get up to August Comte. He's the inventor of uh, positivism and sociology. He said, really, we need to focus only on logic and evidence. And the whole focus on society is really about how to make society work. Don't talk to me about morality, metaphysics, religion, any of that stuff. Let's be practical and just look at logic, evidence, and stuff we can measure. And so mm -hmm. within that environment, we now get to a point where people can't even articulate what it means to be human. And mm -hmm. we live within liberalism, where liberalism champions four ideas, individualism, egalitarianism, universalism so things are true wherever you are around the world we can invade iraq and force our liberal ideas on them and then finally meliorism so we're going to make mm. the world better and better you know with time well those four ideas if we cut them off the branch or the root that they grew out of really become empty ideas once we forget the roots that got, gave us them in the first place and that's where we're at Alistair McIntyre in his great book, After Virtue, talks about, you know, if we we're in a post-apocalyptic world, it's like we're getting fragments and little snippets from what got us to where we are from the past, and we can't recreate it. And so that's mm. where we are now. We're, 
the late liberalism is an elevation of choice above all else. We don't even know why choice should be elevated above all else, but we sure spend a lot of time fighting about it. And and choice certainly seems to be the modus operandi in a lot of public policy decisions today. Like it doesn't matter um, about the natural or instinctive understandings of what it means to be human. What what is human is the ability to choose, and if I choose to be X, Y, Z, uh, then I will be, right? I mean, that it's, um, I'm going to operationalize what I, what my will is. And that is a, a fundamental change we've seen as technology moves on as well. It's giving people more and more this capability um, of being able to, able to make life-altering decisions that previous generations didn't have. And the problem, it seems to me, is that this current generation, unlike previous generations, have not had the understanding and the education, the knowledge, the wisdom, more than the knowledge, because I think you can have all the knowledge, but if you don't have wisdom, what does it profit you, really? Uh, to be able to know and decide whether or not I should choose uh, those items or those decisions or make those uh, decisions. So you, you raise a fascinating point about the about choice, and I I, I reach to uh, uh, Bill Gardner's uh, work on this right now. Mm. He, he he says actually there's there's two aspects to it. On the one hand, we love having radical choice on our sexuality, gender, whatever we do in our own bedrooms, that sort of thing. But at the same time, we embrace a high degree of authority and almost tyranny from the state on other things. You can shop here, you can't shop there. You can only get your health care here. You you know, give us more, more directions, more laws. And so he, he says that there's actually a libertarian socialism in this late example of liberalism. He talks about four stages of liberalism. So the early stage was sort of the Puritans and the, and the early uh, colonizers, the early settlers in the United States and Canada came and they had a sense of virtue liberalism. So they wanted to be free so that they could be good. Leave us alone. Mm. We want to worship our God and live our lives the way we want. And so it was a, it's a, a very unique stage of liberalism. The second uh, stage that followed was something, I forget his exact title, but it was essentially material liberalism. So they very quickly became rich and wealthy and they you know had farms and factories because they were frugal and hardworking. And so they wanted to be free so that they could pursue industry. So that's kind of a material liberalism. The third stage was equality liberalism. As they became wealthy, they looked around and wow, there are a lot of poor people around us. They need help. We need a large state to help us equalize things. And so liberalism came into a third stage of equality liberalism. Gardner argues that in the fourth stage of liberalism, we're now in libertarian socialism, where you, we want you to be able to do as much as you want, take whatever drugs you want, do whatever you want with your body, change your change your external uh, sexual, you know, gender phenotype or the way you present as a male or female, and you know, just go to town as long as the state is there to take us, take care of us when we get sick or when we have consequences from our bad choices. Now, that's Gardner's rubric. I think there's some truth there to it. Um, but I only offer it 
just to say that it's even a little more complex than just saying we're purely about choice because the people mm. who love the choice also seem to love the big state. They aren't truly libertarians in the leave me alone sense. Right, right. It's kind of like uh, the state becomes somewhat of a, would you say, a crutch or a, a support for their choice? And, and expect everyone to pay for it too, by the way. Yes, yes. And and again, appealing to Gardner, but many other authors have said this as well. We could think of society as having three layers. So at the bottom layer is the individual's. The middle layer is all the organic social institutions, your local hockey club, your churches and synagogues, your soccer club, your knitting club, your book club, uh, your law society, your medical associations. That's the middle layer of society. Then the upper layer of society is government or the state, the regulators, the police, that sort of thing. And, and what happens over time as we put more and more reliance on the state to take care of us, the state works best if it can atomize the individuals get rid of that middle sandwich in society all those organic associations and you know burke's word was uh, edmund burke's word was little platoons, platoons but get those yeah. out of the way get to the hobbesian form of society big state atomized individuals and then the state can take care of things keep us safe from each other and provide all the services we need hmm. i wonder if it, you know, as you mentioned about that middle layer, and I've thought about this a fair bit, especially over the last couple of years, uh, when we've had the state imposing its position on what it expected or the mandates, you know, for the COVID-19 uh, lockdowns and, and so forth, that the middle state, in essence, becomes arms of the state. So in other words, all of these various and middle layers, whether it's church, whether it's uh, the, like you say, the professional organizations and so on, they now begin imposing uh, on the individual directives from the state. And I thought that was an interesting eliminating of the middle layer, as it were. Yeah. So what happens, and I've spent an awful lot of time actually in medical associations, sat on the board of the Canadian Medical Association, the Ontario Medical Association. I've been president of the Ontario Medical Association. And so that middle layer, mm -hmm. when you have the state taking more and more of, of society for itself, the way to get money for yourself and power for yourself, if you're one of those middle layer associations, is to plead to the state, give us money. You don't care so much about your members. You just care that they give you the dues and then you got to uh, uh, plead to the state for a greater piece of the pie. And so you end up with a zero sum game, all mm. the associations fighting against each other. You end up with what I call in healthcare is an iron triangle between government, doctors and unions. And no change can happen unless each person gets a bigger piece of the pie. The other problem that overlaps this is I think the state forgets about the rule of law. And I know this is your neck of the woods here. Mm -hmm. So you get into a debate between rule of law versus legal instrumentalism or legal positivism, where the standard nowadays is for the state to say, well, the law is just there for us to use as a tool to make people do things. So if we have a problem, we'll pass a law and the law will fix it. As opposed mm. to a rule of law approach where 
the law exists above the state and the state mm. tries you know, it's very, a very difficult job to try to come up with legislation that captures what we already know to be true. For example, if you start a chess game and you look at the rules of the chess game, nowhere on the, on the rule list does it say you're not supposed to tip the board over when the, your opponent makes a move you don't like, right? That's not on the rule board, but everybody knows it. Or if, you know, we're springtime, if there are ducks walking across the road with a bunch of ducklings behind the, the mommy, mommy duck, Every Canadian slams on their brakes, right? You don't drive over the baby ducks. Mm -hmm. We all know this. And so there are things we know that we, we can't necessarily tell. So that's a Polanyi term. We know more than we can tell. Uh, but this gets to the spirit of the rule of law. And you know, it goes back to Magna Carta. And basically our whole tradition in the West is to say our states should be subservient to this higher um, authority known as the rule of law. The modern state doesn't do that. They look at the law as a tool that they can write laws no matter what, give them a fancy name like Patients First Act, even mm -hmm. though it often means Bureaucracy First Act, and take control. So there's two layers, right? The state takes control, twists its understanding of what the law means, and then all those middle layers end up begging at the uh, coffers of this treasury to give them more power. So it's a complex question you've asked. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it seems like as time goes on, it's becoming even more complex as our state and its regulations, the, the laws get uh, more and more layered on top of each other. And it becomes very difficult for the um, trying to even understand the basic um, rules of the game as it were uh because it's it's just become overwhelming to many many people and that i think this is part of the reason why a lot of people are kind of leaving uh they're not even participating in the process of electing government officials and so forth because they're so mesmerized that they just feel like you know it's all it doesn't make sense or and what they do make sense of is they find it confusing and so there's a lack of participation that uh, a lot of people have been noticing in recent years um as we as we look at um uh your work and the importance of uh trying to uh, make sense of what's going on uh when it comes to uh, you know the care or physician's care of the patients. You've written the book, When Politics Comes Before Patients. Um, why is that? Why, why do we get politics uh, before patients? Is it money? Is it, what is it? Well, um, a, a powerful question again, and it would take a whole book to unpack that. <laughs> and I try to Somehow do that if I knew somebody who pages. wrote that book, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, but it, it started initially in the 1970s, right, where the government said, well, we're just going to pay for care. So we're going to take over all mm. those insurance companies. Actually, over 60% of Canadians actually were already covered by an insurance plan. Uh, many of the people who weren't covered didn't want to be covered. They were self-insured, right? They had enough money to cover themselves. 
And so government could have taken a European approach where they just pay for the insurance premiums for everybody else. But no, Tommy Douglas and his crowd said, no, we need to nationalize the medical insurance companies. And what that means is they took over them and they, they allowed the companies to still exist. These companies exist as funding agencies for research and humanitarian efforts. I'm thinking two of the largest ones, AMS and PSI in Ontario. So they're still in existence, but they don't offer medical insurance. But as mm. soon as the government starts to pay for something... And especially when there are no questions asked, only within a few years, they need to start turning off the taps. And so if you have a minute, I can just tell you how it all worked. Um, healthcare is supposed to be a provincial um, a mandate out of Section 92 of the Constitution Act. However, mm -hmm. the federal government has spending power. So in other words, they right. can raise money and spend it over and above what they need within their mandate in the Constitution. So in 1948, they started the federal health, uh, the national health uh, uh, grants, health grants, and they gave money to the provinces saying, hey, go and build hospitals. So that's why you see all these little hospitals across Canada. 1957, the federal government again passed the Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act. And this is where the first time you see this 50-50 cost-sharing agreement. So they said, whatever care you pay for provinces in hospitals, we'll pick up half the tab. 1968, mm. similar process, except for medical care, everything that doctors do. And so between 1972, so it took between 68 and 72 for all the provinces to buy in. Medical Care Act was actually 1966, but it received royal assent in 68. 68 to 72, all the provinces buy into this. They're all getting money from the federal government now. And those were the golden years of Medicare, right? We had a young population, far more hospital beds than we had people to stick in them. We couldn't really do much for you if you had a heart attack, right? Bed rest, oxygen, morphine. And so really um, the total cost wasn't high and the resources were great and the need was much lower than it is today because we had a younger population. But that changed radically between 72 and 77. So utilization or the number of services people use shot up, went through the roof. And so in 1977, the first Trudeau government said, okay, no more blank checks, no more of this 50-50 business. The, the, the gravy train is being turned off. And that was with the Established Programs and Financing Act. So they gave the provinces some, some tax points and they said, now we are doing a per capita transfer payment. Now the provinces were on the hook. They had built all these hospitals mm. and promised the moon to everybody. Everything's free. First dollar coverage, which means you don't have to pay a penny when you go to see the doc. And so now they were on the hook and they couldn't pay for things. And so they started cutting fees to doctors and adding user fees and adding hospital service charges. And it's been a spiral since 1977. The early 1980s is when it really got tight. Of, and that spiral has been, how can we take more control of clinicians? How can we get in charge of what these doctors order and what these nurses do? Because everything they do costs money. And so that's a long-winded answer to, mm. to try to get at the question you asked of why do we have the government taking so much control of all this business?
And, and of course, there's also, uh, coming back to our original uh, discussion as well, is that even in that discussion, there, there are issues of morality, right? Well, absolutely. So if we circle back, I mean, one of the things, and this, this is going, you know, I'm, I feel nervous talking to a lawyer about the law, but, you know, 1982, the Canadian Constitution, the Constitution right. Act, we get the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, judicial review. So really, we're abrogating our decisions about morality to the courts. And in that article, I quoted a conversation that I had when I was on the chair of the board of the Canadian Medical Association with a colleague. And and uh, I said, well, just because it's legal now to yeah. have physician, you know, assisted death, that doesn't mean it's right. And and he said and he wasn't joking. He wasn't being, uh, you know, um, um, uh, sarcastic or um, ironic or anything. He said, yeah, but the 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 Supreme Court has ruled otherwise. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the Supreme Court said it's OK now. And mm -hmm. so in 1993, with Rodriguez's case, no, no, it's terrible. We don't allow physician-assisted death in Canada. In 2015, yes, we do allow it. And in 2016, we invent a whole new language, right? We don't talk about uh, assisted suicide or physician death or euthanasia. It's medical aid in dying. We capture yeah. everything into this new language. And so the courts have done this for us. So it speaks to a bigger question, again, of who's running the country. Do, does the legislature have the power to actually enact decisions that the voters want? But again, this is way above my pay grade. This is into your neck of the woods, Barry. Yeah, well, it's certainly a, an area that we need to um, do a lot of discussion. Um, Dr. Watley, I want to continue our conversation. I see that our time is gone right now, but I, I, I do want to continue our conversation to, to, to unpack more of these uh, concepts and the importance of morality uh, in medicine, but also in general public policy. And so I'm wanting you to stand by for another go around. But uh, for this section, is there anything else you would like to share with our viewers right now? I, I just encourage people, regular voters are going to make the difference. It's the regular citizens that if they get involved and pick one tiny area that really captures your interest, you don't have to become an expert on it, everything. Nobody is. Pick one thing and then talk mm -hmm. about it. Learn about it. Talk to your members of uh, provincial parliament or federal parliament, your neighbors, write letters to the newspaper. That's how things change. So we need participatory democracy or our democracy won't work at all. Okay. Well, listen, thank you very much for, for joining us today. My pleasure. Okay, folks, thank you for joining us and uh, being part of this discussion. Uh, we will continue our discussion next time. And uh, until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. And remember that on this program, there we have open, honest, transparent dialogue. You may not agree with everything uh, that's being said here, but this is the reason why First Freedoms started, and it's why we have Freedom Feature. See you soon. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. 
Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca